All right, go ahead and grab your Bible. Meet me in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Now, you can't see me that well right now. There's, we've had some issues with the lights this morning, but you know, Jesus is bigger than, it, uh, than issues with the lights this morning. So um, we've been in Genesis for the past number of weeks, and we've walked all the way through 11 full chapters of Genesis. And so what we've seen before we like move forward and finish out chapter 11 today and take a peek at the beginning of chapter 12 is I think it would be a good idea for us to kind of do a little bit of re review. I used to be a teacher. I was a middle school technology education teacher up in uh, Wake County. And part of my regular rhythms of class was we did review before we started any new topics. That's a good practice for us. And uh, if we're going to be students of God's word, if we're going to be people that know and love the Bible, we need that kind of repetition. We need to remember what we've seen before we move forward. And so um, in the beginning, we see that God created what? The heavens and the earth, everything that's in it, right? Everything's up there, everything's down here, and everything in between. And he made it not bad, but what? Good. Everything was good. Everything was good. But just because everything was good that God made didn't mean it stayed that way, right? There was a fall. Adam and Eve fall into sin, but God shows them grace. And in even him giving and pronouncing the judgment for sin over them and the curse, he promises a redeemer. He promises a, a, a snake crusher, one who's going to come and reverse the curse through the seed of the woman. And so we see that God has called men and women to go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And as they fill the earth, they're not only filling the earth with babies and, and continue to being fruitful and multiply, they're filling the earth with continual descent into chaos. After the introduction of, of death with, the, with Cain and Abel, it's not long before murder, mis sexual misconduct, and even the blurring of the lines of not, it's not just the physical world around us that we've seen that's gone into chaos, but the spiritual world around us that's gone in descent into chaos. But God starts over with the flood. We saw a couple weeks ago the story of Noah. It's not the, you know, plushy, cleaned up, you know, flannel graph version that we, we see uh, or maybe remember from that age of Sunday school, you know, with the flannel graph, and you got like the puffy head of Moses, I mean, Noah uh, poking his head out of the ark and then the giraffe beside of him and all that. No, it was the death of everyone on the known world, the known planet at the time. Everyone died. It was horrific. It was terrible. But God chose to save for himself the family of Noah. He chose for himself to save the animals in creation, to recreate the world that Noah wouldn't be that final rest bringer, even though he looked like it, Noah's actually going to blow it too. He, gets out, he steps right off the ark, he plants a vineyard, he gets drunk, and something weird happens between him and his son, and then we see that he's not the final rest bringer to bring the end of death into God's world. Last week, we saw the story of the Tower of Babel, where mankind gets the bright idea to say, hey, we're going to make this giant tower of pride, and say that, like, look at us. We're the biggest. We're the baddest. We're the best. We can do it. We can be like God. Hey, hint, hint, you're already like God, guys. And so they are having a celebration over this massive tower that they've made. And so God says, that's cute. I'm going to get out my magnifying glass and go see what's going on down there. They, they supposedly think they've made this mo monumental, massive thing, but God has to go down there confuse their language, and scatter them over all the earth so that sin 
cannot continue to flourish like it did before. He confuses their languages and scatters them across the earth. The big themes that we've seen in the story so far, first and foremost, is God's goodness. God creates, and all of creation bears the signature of his goodness in the world around us. We've been created in his image. He gives us everything we need to flourish. But God also judges sin. Sin being rebellion against God. God must do something about it if he is to be just, and so he has to bring judgment on sin. But even in his judgment on sin, God shows his very mercy by rescuing, by showing compassion and forgiveness towards someone who it's not ultimately due. And we ultimately see that our God is a God of grace who shows unmerited favor, unmerited kindness, that he just gives to us anyway because we can't earn it on our own set. We are broken humans, but God has brought about a promise. And so today we arrive at a hinge point in the book of Genesis. Chapter 12 is going to, like a funnel, uh, take the story from all of creation, all these huge things, all of the world, and we're going to see all the way down to this one family. Everything's going to kind of funnel and bottleneck at this one point, and that's where we're going to find ourselves today. And so, again, uh, if you've noticed this so far in the text, there's been a lot of genealogies, these Toledots that, uh, that Moses employs that says, these are the generations of, and beyond that either is a list of names or stories to tell in order to show you of how God is going to connect and, sh- and bring us to the one who's going to bring us rest, okay? And so today, this phrase is going to kick off this long list of names, and we're going to get through all of Shem's descendants here. And then we're going to see uh, the next Toledot that gets us through Terah's descendants that kicks off the story of who we know and love as Abraham, okay? But he doesn't start that way. We're going to see just how messed up this dude was and his family was. But on full display in this passage today, we are going to see that God chooses the most unlikely and the most undeserving to bless. God chooses the most unlikely and undeserving to bless. All right, let's start in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 10 of Genesis. Hopefully, if you have a Bible, you'll meet me there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some uh, black hardback ones at the back of the room back there. If you don't own a Bible or if you don't have one, you can consider that Bible our gift to you this morning. We love the Bible, and we, we want you to have one as well. Let's start in verse 10 together. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad, and after two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. Kind of makes you want to say, Shelah, you're almost, you can't help but have the kind of fake Australian accent when you say this guy's name. Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he followed Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he followed Peleg. And Eber lived after he followed Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. And when Peleg lived after he had fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu lived 32 years, he followed Surug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sirug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. 
And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Let's stop right there for right now. So this is a genealogy with a massive story to tell. I know for us, when we read a genealogy like this, we just see a list of names and we're like, nap time. Can we just fast forward through this and get to the good stuff, right? Uh, But there's a lot of really good details in here that we may not have picked up on. The first of which is the omission of the phrase, and he died after each of these men's names. Maybe you didn't notice that, but one of the the, the genealogies previous to this, it's, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died after every single one of the guys. I know, welcome to church, super depressing, you're going to die one day, right? Welcome to church. Now, for sure, all of these guys passed away, but the emphasis of this genealogy is not on these men's death, but on their life. This is something we're supposed to see the hope of God, that he's being faithful to bless human life and continue about bringing about new life through human birth. I mean, what's more natural than to celebrate new human life, right? Like in all the old cartoons and movies, you know, when the birth happens, you know, the guy's like, you get a cigar and you get a cigar. And it's like an Oprah moment before it was even a thing. And because what's more natural to celebrate than human life? I had a baby. I had a child. Let's celebrate that thing together. I'm talking like even people that you hate. When they had a baby, there's something about you that just wants to high-five them. There's just even people that you can't stand. It's like, well, I'm glad for you, and I'm happy for you. And so this needs, we need to see this as good news. But this genealogy doesn't just represent all good news. There's some bad news in here as well. Remember God's promise back in the flood that he's going to shorten human life? It actually gets realized in this, um, in this genealogy. I don't know if you noticed, but there is a continual tick down in years of guys these, these men lived. But then also, like more obvious than that, it's the years in which they were having children, right? Those, those, those years are ticking down and, and rapidly ticking down. So I think in some way, this, this shortening of human life helps us realize, one, that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. He's going to follow through with his word. But two, I think it helps humanize these biblical figures for you and I. Let's be honest. It's easy to functionally say, yep, I believe that these, you know, these, were, these are real people in real time and functionally believe all of that. But then when it comes to Monday morning, we treat these folks like they're mythological characters more than they are real people in real time that God actually cares about. See, these people had real lives. And I think that when we read the Bible and actually believe these people really lived, people went through these real experiences, it humanizes them to the point for us to be able to see what we're supposed to see in the scriptures, that God wants us to read our Bibles in a way that we, we, we really see these not as a bunch of stories to be memorized or to just uh, the verses to quote, but as God's living, breathing word to us that's true. Seeing the reality of the Bible helps uh, me really help me, helps me relate to the people in the story and better see what God wants to teach me through their real experiences. See, uh, one of the ways the writer Genesis wants to teach us and clue us in on these things and what's happening in this story is through design patterns. Design patterns is a helpful kind of phrase that I borrowed from a guy named Tim Mackey. It's been really helpful for me to understanding that there are intentional repetitions and key elements within a story to show something about God or about us, good or bad or whatever, 
there's a design pattern happening in this genealogy, and it's this. In the first genealogy from Adam all the way to Noah, guess how many generations there are represented? Ten. And at the end of that, there were three kids out of that tenth generation that kind of came out. And guess what? This genealogy maps perfectly onto that one. There are ten generations. I don't know if you picked up on this, but at the, at the end of the table of nations, uh, last week when we read the story, there's a couple of those guys that are in that genealogy that are also in this genealogy. What Moses is doing here is showing us, look, there's another group of folks that I'm going to bring the promise through. Because at the end of the genealogy with Noah, Noah is told he's named in faith as the one who's hopefully going to bring rest from the curse. And so Moses is showing us as writing through this of like, hey, alarm bells are going off. Ten generations here. Ten generations that's ending in the, in, in the birth of three kids, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. One of these guys is going to be our dude. He's going to be the one who's going to hopefully bring rest from the curse and, and at least continue the line to get us to the one that's going to do it. This should build our anticipation. and We should be looking for how God's going to fulfill his promise to bring us rest from the curse. So let's continue and see how the story progresses with Terah, okay, and his family. Verse 27 together. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father. Can't be that guy. Terah in the land of his kindred in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram and his son and Lot and the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. All right, a lot jam-packed in there. It's, you know, it feels like a little bit of like, well, we got a little bit of hillbilly stuff going on in here. Like, I'm my own grandpa's about to happen, you know, with the song. I don't know, you guys are too young for that. No. So here's the scoop on Terah and his tiny little inbred family here that just doesn't jump off the page for us because we're not ancient Israelites and we don't understand uh, the, the significance of some of these cities or maybe we miss some details in there and we don't tell stories like uh, the biblical writers do nowadays, right? So if you here, get this frame of reference in your head, uh, if you've ever visited another country or been a, a part of a different um, a cultural experience than we have here in relative America, uh, you will understand that if you go somewhere else that's outside of your comfort zone, your culture, or whatever, it can be a little bit of a culture shock for you. And if you show up uh, speaking English and asking for the McDonald's is, you know, when you, you show up in the middle of the Middle East somewhere, or you show up in France, you know, speaking English, asking for, you know, a Bojangles, where, where's that at? You're just not going to find it. And with the people around you, you can't expect to get the same cultural nuances and appreciate the same foods and sports and smells as other cultures. The same is true for when we read the Bible. A lot of times we show up in the Bible and we start walking around like a bad tourist in the Bible. We expect the way that they tell stories to be the way that we should understand them. We expect the, the nuances and culture of us, we read them into the Bible, 
that just isn't there. And so it's helpful for us to be a good steward of the Bibles that we've been given. And that's why it's a really good idea to not read the Bible completely divorced of other people. You're made to read the Bible in the context of community. The whole reason we had Evan and CT up here earlier talking about that is because it's important for you to not just read your Bible and you just only have your alone time with Jesus forever. Let me just clue you in. Heretics have one thing in, in common. They got alone and they all just got fixated on this one idea that they thought was really awesome that no one else could say, yeah, buddy, you know, that's not right. That, that, that's not good. Other people speaking into that thing. And so it's good for you to read commentaries. It's good for you to read the Bible together with other people and, and important for you to read the Bible in community with others. And so back to the text. Let's look in with a little bit of help from some commentators that I, it's helped me a lot this week. Some facts about Terah that you probably didn't know. Okay, the first thing is, Terah is from Ur. Ur is really, really significant because Ur is an epicenter of, uh, of the worship of a particular goddess, namely a moon goddess named Nana. And it ain't your Nana, it's Nana. I mean, they did like human sacrifice at this place. Bad news bears, you don't want to go there. It's really, really important because that means that probably Terra is a pagan moon worshiper worshiping Nana. Not good. Bad news bears here. And we have this entire city dedicated to the worship of this moon god. But then, not all is bad with Terah. He has three sons, and the way that these sons are listed first, Abram is listed first in verse 27, but that doesn't mean he's the oldest here. Just like in the genealogy of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they are listed out of birth order as well. So, Haran, his oldest kid, if we're looking for the guy who's going to bring uh, the, continue the line or bring us rest from the curse, Haran dies uh, in, uh, so he's not the guy, a, a, but he doesn't die before having at least three kids, Ishka, Lot, and Milcah. But speaking of Milcah, his brother, <laughs> Nahor, marries her. So youngest actually marries her, and that is his brother's daughter. And so talk about awkward family boundaries here. Like, not a good situation, Bob. And then we finally get to Abram. And when you get to Abram, here's where you think that things are going to get a little bit better. Like, Abram, he's going to be our guy. Father Abraham had many sons. You know, he's the guy we're looking for here. But at first glance at this guy, it's not looking too good either. Let's talk about Abram and Sarah. First off, they are not like the Chip and Joanes type tier couple here looking for, right? This is definitely not the top candidates of a wholesome family TV, uh, friendly TV show. I know some of you might be surprised by a few of these details, but here we go. One, Abram was not the firstborn, and I know you get that, but in this society at this time, uh, birth order doesn't, uh, it meant a lot. Like the, the famous cultural prophet Ricky Bobby uh, likes to say, if you ain't first, you're last, okay? That's really, really big deal. That's where all the inheritance would go to. That's where or a lot of like the, the influence would go to. If you're not first in this, in this culture, you're kind of, kind of out of luck. But also that means that Abram is going to have to walk with and kind of act as dad to this dude named Lot. And I don't know if you know anything about Lot moving forward, but he is going to be a handful, always causing trouble for Abram, always getting himself in some kind of fix that he needs to get out of. And so Abram's not the firstborn, but he's also a moon worshiper just like his dad. In their hometown of Ur, there was this massive three-tiered, 
temple tower, much like the Tower of Babel, where Abraham likely participated in totally wicked pagan worship of the moon goddess Nana, which, as I said earlier, include human sacrifice. Joshua clears this up for us if we have questions about that in Joshua 24.2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Okay, so they're pagans, right? But what else could be wrong with these folks? They're old. And that's a really big deal in the story. Why is it a big deal in the story? It's because he's got to father children and all these other dudes in the genealogy, the years for baby making is going down and down and down and down, lower and lower and lower. And so, you know, later on in the story, Genesis uh, is going to tell us more details as well. And it just looks worse and worse for this guy because Abram is actually married to his half-sister. Woo! Man, Abram, come on, guy. Get it together, right? And then finally, Abram and Sarah, it tells this definitive detail about them in verse 30. It says, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. This is where the story could have ended for Abram. It would definitely look like Abram isn't our guy. He's unlikely, totally undeserving. He just looks like his life is a mess. He comes from no, hey, this dude's a nobody. If you think that you have a rough situation going on, no matter how you're coming into this place this morning, I, I think you need to be encouraged here. God cares about nobodies whose life looks like an utter mess who looks like they don't have it all together because God cares about the most unlikely and undeserving. In fact, God chooses the most unlikely and undeserving to pour out his blessings on and use to accomplish his purposes. Let's look at what happens next in the story. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to, not to Lot, not to Nahor, not to anyone else. He said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and on him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chooses Abram and Sarah. Not Nahor, not Lot, not anyone else. He chooses them to be the means by which he's going to bless the whole world. This chapter 12 of Genesis, throughout the rest of the Bible, is going to focus on this family, on Abram, and how God is going to bring this promise to reality. Through many highs and lows, ups and downs, through ways that which God's people are separated and taken from the land that God even promises to Abram later, where it looks like the promise has just been abandoned and God is silent, eventually God brings his promises true through Abram and his family. God brings the fulfillment of his promise through Jesus, through Abraham. So in spite of their status, in spite of their sin, in spite of their age, their situation, their very deficiencies, God chooses to bless them specifically. This tells us so much about God. If you're coming here this morning and maybe you're, you don't know about God, you don't know about Jesus, you don't really, you're, you're kind of testing these claims 
Is God really good? Is he really for me? Is he, is he, re- is he really worth following? He has a heart for you. He has a heart for the lowly, the downtrodden, the most wayward, the most broken. As we read this story of the whole Bible, again and again, we are shown the faithfulness of God as he pursues his needy people. And this shows us that God sees us in the most embarrassing and saddest points in our lives and still chooses to pursue and bless us. You're here this morning because God has chosen to pursue you and chosen to bless you. So we must ask ourselves the question this morning, is this just a good story? What does this mean for us? I think in light of this story, we need to see that God chooses uh, to bless us through the fulfillment of promise of Abraham. Maybe you feel unlikely and undeserving of the blessings of God. Man, you, you know your own sin. You know your situation. You know how much you don't measure up this morning. Maybe you feel broken by something that's happened to you. Maybe you feel unlikely and undeserving of the blessings of God. See, God is inviting you to experience the blessings of his love and power in the middle of your sufferings, knowing just how bad you don't deserve it. Hear Galatians 3 verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Church, this morning, this morning, if we believe God's promise, we are justified by faith and we are blessed along with Abram. And here's how the good news is for all of us this day. Maybe you you feel defined by a deficiency or a weakness in your life. Maybe you're facing divorce. Maybe you feel crushed by loneliness. Maybe you feel like you've been defined by your sickness. Maybe there's this been this narrative of your life that you feel like won't change and it's defined you and ruled you your entire life. Maybe even you're walking through infertility like Abram and Sarah. Maybe you've lost a child. You feel like that devastation, it's just engulfing your entire life. I am here to tell you that you are in good company this morning. This room is filled with people who are grace-hungry, mercy-needing, God-needing people. God sees us. God has not forgotten us. He sees you. He's not forgotten you. And God, through Jesus, has chosen you, the most unlikely and the most undeserving, to pour out his blessings on. Yes, it started with Abraham, but it's continued to you this morning. God loves you and wants to pour his blessings on you by freeing you from being defined by what you see as your deficiencies this morning. So if you're here and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, believe that this promise of freedom is for you. Believe it. Be free from your guilt. Be free from your shame. Being defined by your deficiencies, God wants to use what is maybe felt like it's controlled and ruined your life to show others his goodness and his provision in the midst of it. See, Jesus, the one who would bring us rest from the curse, would not only live the perfect life in our place, but he would die the death that we deserve for the sin and shame that we rightly deserved. So that on that cross, 
When Jesus was crucified, he bore our shame and our sin and our guilt. And he died. But through his sacrificial death for sin, he also rose again, showing that he reigns victorious over it. That shame that used to define us does not anymore. The guilt that we, that we bear, we, we, it's gone from us, and Jesus has nailed it to the cross. He has dealt with it. He is done with it. It is finished like Jesus would proclaim on the cross. He would be the resolution of all of it. And so if you have just newly trusted in Jesus, know that trusting in Jesus doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to be perfect. Far from it. But if you have faith in Jesus, it means that everything in your life has purpose. It has meaning. That nothing is wasted. The blessing that we receive in Jesus means that future struggle, future pain and worry are things that we endure with the Spirit of God within us. Because Jesus didn't just resurrect from the grave. He is seated on high in power at the right hand of God and sends forth his own very Holy Spirit to fill us and to empower us to endure when the suffering comes, when the pain meets us, when our woundedness feels like it's going to engulf us, we have the spirit of the living God bringing us hope, bringing us uh, the knowledge of that God is with us and he will never forsake us. Again and again and again, we, we preach this truth to ourselves. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians, that, that we are not defined by our own weakness, but we are defined by our dependence on Jesus's strength. Corinthians 1.26 says this, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. We're like Abram. We're not powerful. We're, we, we were many were of, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, hear this church, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As Jesus's people, we are a weak, mercy, hungry, grace needing people. And I pray that never changes. And in our suffering, we are not crushed by it. We have the hope of the gospel that Jesus is our strength. So if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, because of the gospel, we are not defined by our trauma. Because of what Jesus has done, what has happened to us does not get to rule us. So much of the way the, the world wants to meet us in the midst of our circumstances is to own the trauma that's happened to us and define ourselves by it. But Jesus has something different to say. Here, Romans 5, 3. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How do you do that, Paul? How do you do? How do you rejoice in your sufferings as a follower of Jesus? We know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. And here it is. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. If you are a follower of Jesus every day, you are being invited to supernaturally. We can't do this without the Spirit. Rejoice in our sufferings because the proof of God's love has been poured into our hearts. If you see Jesus as worthy of following, if you hope in God at all, it is a miracle. 
It's an absolute miracle of grace of God. We are defined by the hope we have in Jesus. The promise given to Abraham that through all the nations of the earth will be blessed is realized through the death of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection, his resurrection and new life, and the sending of his spirit to fill all who believe. So that means if you're a follower of Jesus, you are never alone in your suffering. You're never alone in your weakness. God is there with you. You're not meant to be able to do this alone. Like in the beginning, we're made good by God for him. He's not made you self-sufficient. He made you for himself. We are made to need God. The last thing I think this passage calls us to see is God intends his blessings on us to extend beyond us. That Abram, we are blessed to be a blessing. When we receive God's blessing of love, approval, and hope, we're meant to share it with others. Let's take one more look at those last three verses of, 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 of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you, I, that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See God's intention in this. See how sure this is going to be for Abram. I think we need to ask some questions of ourselves in light of the sureness that God gives him. The first thing that God tells Abram here is that he's calling him away from his current identity into a new identity that he is creating, that God is creating for him. That God's calling him to trust him, to do the impossible with his situation. And God is calling him to be a blessing because God has blessed him to be a blessing. It's the purpose of it. So I think think we need to think about this for just a moment. Think about Abram in the midst of his circumstances. He's at home with his family. He's got everything he's ever known. He's got his systems of belief. He has all of that. But it's this call that God has of him that causes him to reconsider everything. Reconsider uprooting his life, uprooting himself out of his current identity and into something else. Think about how scary that must have been for Abram. Yeah, we we know that he he had a hot mess of a life here. But this is a scary thing to actually lay claim to the identity that God has called us away from. And so I think the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is what identity has God called you away from? What is the new identity that God is calling you into? See, before I walked in faith as a follower of Jesus, I, I really defined myself by the way others looked at me. I know anybody that knows me is like, oh, really? Big news, shockwave there. I tended to define myself by the way that other people thought of me. I was an inward legalist that tended to judge everybody uh, inside of my own head and tried to be the good boy on the outside to make others like me by serving them or being nice to them or whatever. And that identity is something I had to leave behind in order to follow Jesus. I had to actually lay claim to the truth that I was a sinner in need of salvation before God, because becoming a follower of Jesus is not a declaration of strength. It is a declaration of neediness. 
that I need a savior outside of myself, that I can't save myself, that I can't do enough in order to earn God's favor for me, I have to declare my own weakness before God. And I think that like Abram, if he was going to take any steps of obedience here, and we'll be able to see that next week, if he is going to take any steps of obedience, he has to be willing to say, I'm weak. I don't know what's best. I am choosing to follow another's lead here. And it's what we all have to do when we come to follow Jesus. There may be specific things in your life that you need to consider. In what way is God's calling me away from this one identity? And what's the new identity that he's calling me into? And I think the next thing we ought to ask ourselves is, do we trust Jesus with the things we can't control? So often when I'm confronted with the hard situations in my life, I pick up the solutions hammer and I'd start hitting everything that looks like a nail, right? And so I start running around trying to figure it out. Let's form a plan. Let's, let's do it. You know, let's get a whole bunch of actions out there. And my first reaction isn't to go to God in dependence and pray or meet with him or ask him. It's what can I do? What can I fix? It's part of that current, that, that old man identity that I'm clinging onto in myself. What I should be doing is trusting Jesus with the things I can't control. Here's a few things I have to trust Jesus with. My future. I don't know what's going to happen. Guess what? You do too. <laughs> I don't know if we got any like major prophets in the room, big P prophets out there. I don't think so. You don't know. You got to trust. You have to trust God with your future. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. When you get in that car and leave the parking lot, you don't know what's going to happen. I have to trust God with the salvation of my kids, that I can't save them myself. doesn't matter how many times we, we pray prayers together, we read the Bible together, we, we rip through about two Jesus storybook Bibles together, you know, like the spine's falling off the thing. But I can't save my kids. Only Jesus can save my kids. I can't do it. Even the future of this church. I'm called to be a pastor and leader in this church. And I want us to have a permanent building. I want us to reach more people in the city. I want to see us actually plant churches. I want to see us live into our vision for a church to be a church for the city, for the military, for the fame of Jesus, to be realized. But ultimately, I can't accomplish any of that. I can't do it. I can't will it into being. Jesus is in control, and I have to trust. My job in this equation is to trust Jesus with the things that I can't control. And then finally, the last question we should ask ourselves in light of this passage is, do my actions reflect the truth that I have been blessed to be a blessing like Abram, right? This is the call that God gave Abram, the blessed to be a blessing. The same is true for us because of what Jesus has accomplished. We have only received from Jesus. We didn't earn anything. Unmerited favor, grace poured out upon us. And part of that is be blessed to be a blessing to others. And this gets to our church's mission and vision statement that, that we should love God, love people, and advance the gospel. I believe if we actually start believing that we exist for the fame of Jesus, our actions will, towards others, will change. It'll change the way we steward our money. It'll change the way we view our time. If we value people over things, we're going to be generous with others. We're going to give to see the gospel advance. We're going to change the way we interact with other people. We'll start viewing our time together like this on a Sunday morning, not as a way just to fill up our own tank, but to serve one another and see others meet Jesus. So we pray, we serve, we give, and we get to see Jesus do incredible things 
because of it, but we realize this is not in our earning. This is, we're serving out of our identity, not for it. We've already been gained our identity because Jesus has graciously chosen us. He's brought us in. The most unlikely and undeserving, guess what, guys? That's all of us. We don't get to say, well, those are the most unlikely or those are the most undeserving people in here. No, if you don't see yourself as the most unlikely and undeserving one here, you got problems here in the heart. You've got some stuff that you need to take to Jesus with because you believe you really are worthy enough to stand before God on your own two feet and that you don't need Jesus in that area of your heart. No, we are most the unlikely, undeserving ones who have received God's grace. And thank God that is every single one of us. Let's pray together. God, you have shown yourself faithful. You've shown yourself true to make your promises a reality. To bring about the good news of the gospel that was preached even by the mouth of Abraham. God, you are a good God. You are faithful from one thing to another in our lives. God, you have shown yourself only good, only capable, only um, the one deserving of glory and honor and praise. God, we only deserve something different than what you've given us. Praise God. We who are undeserving and unlikely are the recipients of your grace. Even this morning, God, may we drink deeply the fountains of grace that never run dry. May we taste this morning and see that you are good, God. I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.